Been in this series called Theology for Ordinary People, of which today is the final week. Aww. Yeah, oh, that's good. I thought you'd go, yes, ready to move on, Pastor. So far, we've talked about creation, God, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, the Trinity, salvation, the church, and this week I get to use the joke for the last time we're going to finish with heaven. Yes, okay, still got a little bit. If there is a word that resonates with us as humans, you know, given what our world is like, especially at the moment, it's hope, isn't it? Everyone needs hope. The fallen nature of the world and, you know, the, the level of brokenness that we see and that we experience ourselves uh, each, means that each person is looking for hope. The message of the gospel is exactly that, is hope. It's based squarely on the resurrection of Jesus as our assurance of what has been done and what is still to come. It's because of the resurrection, you know, God triumphed over death, that we can have complete assurance and hope for all of us, even though we suffer and die. The resurrection also reminds us that God is completely true to his word. And so when he says he's coming again, we can believe it because of the resurrection. When he says there is an eternity for all who repent and are saved, we can completely believe it because God has always been true to his word. You know, we worship a God who is always the same, and that brings a lot of confidence in us. You know, he will do new things, but God himself has not changed. And so we, we can trust him and his promises. When he says there's an eternity for all, we can trust that. For all who would repent, we can trust that. Now, the idea of eternity, it's hard to grasp. But the thought of it does bring peace and reassurance, doesn't it? To know that it, it, our life doesn't just, it doesn't just finish. Our time on earth when it's over, that's not just the end. You know, the lights don't just go out completely for for us, there is something after life. Doesn't that bring us some, some kind of hope in here? Some, some reassurance? So today we're going to look at eternity and touch a little bit on end times, because the two go, go together. Now the theological term for end times is eschatology. That basically means it's the study of Christ's return, and it includes things such as heaven. The eschatology of the New Testament, it's complex and, and there's, been, you know, there's been a lot of ink written or used on this subject for, for 2,000 years or more. It's one we're all interested in because we're searching for answers. We, we, we want to know well, what happens after we're finished here on earth, after death. What happens in this life after death? Now, this is how McGrath, by the way, I, I forgot to I do the usual thing where I give credit to Alistair McGrath because we're following this book um, through this series called Theology for, or Theology of the Basics. And um, we've been using some of his material just to keep us on track. I highly recommend this book to you. It's just a nice little thin one. Uh, but this is how McGrath defines eschatological, uh, the, the, theme, the eschatological theme in the New Testament. He says, something which happened in the past has inaugurated something new. And I've just put in brackets there 
in the present for us, which will reach its final consummation in the future. Something which has happened in the past has inaugurated something new, which will reach its final consummation in the future. And the reality of that for you and I is that we're caught up in this tension of the now and the not yet. You know, Jesus won the victory through his death and resurrection, but the final phase is not yet complete. That happens when he returns. In one sense, heaven has not yet happened. In another, its powerful promise already impacts upon us in a, in a dramatic and complex way. At the same time, we're excited at its prospect that's heaven on one hand and dejected knowing that we, you know, we're not there yet. We want to be there, but we're not there yet. That's the tension that we Christians live in. The kingdom of heaven is now, but not yet fully, fully realized. So what is heaven? Since that's the name of the sermon today, you know, that'd be good if I could help you with that. But to be honest, I can't give you a lot of clarity that you might be looking for. In fact, we've only really got a, a glimpse of heaven through the scriptures and a glimpse of heaven through earth. And the rest has to be somewhat imagined and hypothesized over the years and the, theologians have tried to do their best to help us with that. So what do we know about heaven? Here's a few things I've got for you today. The first one is that heaven is a future reality for believers with present, as in now, citizenship now. And Paul says this in Philippians, we are citizens of heaven. You know, even though we're on earth, we are citizens of heaven where the Lord Jesus Christ lives and we eagerly await for him to return as our saviour. So not only is Paul pointing towards a future place, obviously somewhere where we aren't yet, the cool thing is that he says our heavenly citizenship is also right now. Paul doesn't say we will be citizens of heaven when we arrived. We already are. It's like the citizenship certificate. That was really hard to say. The citizenship certificate <laughs> has already been sent in the mail before you even get there. You know, when you get to heaven, if you go, let's pretend there's an immigration center for a second in heaven, you already have the passport. Yeah. That is a cause for celebration because there's no tourist visas <laughs> in heaven. <laughs> it's only the citizens that have access and you already have the passport. You already have that citizenship certificate. This idea of current citizenship again reminds us of how in some way we're sharing in the life of a future, of a future heaven here in the present. For Paul, the hope of heaven impacts upon life in the here and now. Even though heaven in all its fullness is, you know, it's not realized yet for us. This is why the New Testament calls the church to bring heaven to earth through the transforming power of the gospel. You know, the prayer that Jesus prayed was, Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. So we've got to be clear about this. There's nothing in the Bible that points us to receive a citizenship ticket to heaven and then hide away until the time is right to produce it. You know, that's, that's not in the Bible. That's not Christian faith. Kingdom come on earth is realized through God's followers, the church. Hopefully, the church is that glimpse of heaven. Hopefully, the church 
is the glimpse of heaven. Because it's your kingdom come, your will be done. It's not your kingdom wait until we get there. It's kingdom now. The second thing about heaven is it's a place where Christ is and where, from where he will return. In 1 Thessalonians, again, Paul's talking says, For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a commanding shout, with the voice of, with the, voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God. And there's probably not much more to add on this point at the moment, except to say that theologically heaven appears to be a place that is not earth, at least not in the present form. And that this is where Christ was going to return from. The third thing about heaven is there's a promise of new bodies. And this is the one that kind of gets us a little bit excited. And because these new bodies don't fade away, all right? Yeah, like our current ones do. Trust me, for the young ones that are left here today, you're like, I don't get this point. For the rest of us, we're like, yes. <laughs> Our bodies won't just have a lifetime guarantee. They will have an eternal guarantee. You know? Yeah, praise God. Here's what Paul says. We believers also grown even though we have the Holy Spirit within us as a foretaste of Future glory, for we long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering. That's an important point. We too wait with eager hope for the day when God will give us our full rights as his adopted children, including the new bodies he has promised us. So we eagerly await that. It sounds good. All pain, disease and disability will be gone. You'll notice in that scripture it says no more sin. Free from that. Our bodies new. Talk about hope. The fourth thing about heaven is um, Jesus used the word paradise to describe it. This is what he said in Luke 23, I assure you today you will be with me in paradise. You know, this of course was the words that Jesus spoke to the, to the rebel who was crucified beside him when he realized who Jesus was and his need for him. Jesus describes the place that you go to when you die as paradise. Again, it's another great hope for us to hold on to. But what do you think of when you think of paradise? That would be interesting to do a survey, wouldn't it? Jot down some words that describe paradise for you. I wonder what we'd hear from everybody. But this is our struggle when we try to picture heaven. We only have our current reality from which to imagine how magnificent heaven will be. Which is good because this is God's creation. So we probably have an idea. But it's a glimpse of how good heaven will be. You know, I just talked before about how we're going to head off, hopefully, on a, on a holiday this week. But you know what it's like when you're planning a holiday. The holidays are great, but sometimes the lead up, the expectation can be good too, can't they? You know, you kind of look forward to them. Not that we, we hate our, our jobs and every day and all that sort of stuff, but we kind of look forward to that something different, a break, seeing something new, something fresh. That expectation is kind of good. Let's be honest. That's kind of how we should think of heaven. We should sometimes sit and think about how good it's going to be and how excited we will be there to be in heaven that one day. Most of us have heard that heaven is a place where streets apparently are paved with gold and the gates are made of pearl and the the walls are made of precious jewels. And if you read Revelation 21, that's kind of a picture that's, that's painted 
something beautiful to look forward to. And if you ask me if I believe those images are literally truth, you know, if, is that literally what heaven will, will look like? I'm not sure I know the answer to that. But when John writes about a city made of gold, I don't doubt his words for a second. He simply reports what he saw in his vision. Thus, his words are true. But as with a lot of revelation, John uses imagery to describe a future reality. It probably means that God was perhaps, you know, gold was perhaps the best image he could find to describe what he saw in his vision. Maybe the vision of heaven was just going to be so powerful that this, that was the best image God could give John was gold. Because we know how precious gold is. I think that's what you want to take away from it. Heaven will be an amazing place. More amazing than John could imagine, I reckon. And probably more amazing than we can imagine. The fifth thing about heaven is that God wants you there with him. This is important. This is good. Here's what Jesus says. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God and trust also in me. There is more than enough room in my father's home. If this were not so, would I have told you that I am... Would I, yeah, would I have told you that I am going to prepare a place for you? When everything is ready, I will come and get you so that you will always be with me where I am. That's, that's the hope of Jesus for every single one of us here today. And according to Jesus, heaven is a real place. It's where he is now. It's just as real as this church we're sitting in today. It's a real place with real pe people. It's not Disneyland. It's not clouds. You know, or some kind of fairy tale. It's real. It's real like the earth is real. It's real. And it gives us hope. But the key message for me is a God who would do anything for you to be there with him. That's what I want you to hear today. If you, if you don't hear anything else, is that God will do anything to get you and I there. The incarnation. Jesus gave up heavenly privileges to come to earth as a man to be with us. The cross. Jesus suffered and died in our place so that we can have our sins forgiven and be made right with God. The resurrection. Jesus overcame sin and death and brought new life in him to the world. He lives in me and you. The coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. The Holy Spirit came to give birth to the church and empower the church to spread this good news to the world, which... He has done and continues to do. The Holy Spirit is our guarantee of adoption into his family. The second coming of Christ. Jesus says right here that at just the right time, he will come and get his people. That's what that verse says. And we will always be with him. Jesus wants us there with him. And he'll do anything, even give his life. All this and much more he has done. He's done all he can. He wants us with him, even today. But he gives each person a choice. He says you have to repent, be forgiven, and follow me. And then eternity with him is ours. Or he says you can reject me, and then there's no eternity with him for that person. Which brings me to this discussion on end times. You know, Christians love to talk about end times. Revelation is an interesting book, but let's be honest, it's hard to interpret. Does everyone agree with me on that? I hope you do. 
Although many have tried to interpret it, and, and consequently, we have many interpretations that have been produced. The genre of Revelation is apocalyptic, okay? That's the style. It's important that you keep that in mind. John received this vision, and it's filled with hard-to-interpret symbolism, imagery, prophecy, warnings, some literal, some figurative. There's letters in there to the church. There's lots in Revelation. That's hard. Working out what is literal and what is not is not easy. Understanding the imagery can be difficult. Understanding what parts are from John's past, present, and future and what is in our own past, present, and future may not always be completely possible for us, although some say they've worked it out. I say be careful of those who tell you that they have the only true interpretation of Revelation. Now, just so you know, because we've been talking theology, and theology is just the word for talking about Jesus, talking about God. Uh, The Wesleyan Methodist Church has a very simple article of faith on end times and revelation. It's simply this. Essentially, we believe that revelation is true, it's God's word, and that Jesus is coming back, and that truth should motivate us to holy living. That's as far as they go. One of the big debates, though, that's been around is the notion of millennium, which comes from Revelation 20, and it refers to the idea of a restored earthly kingdom lasting for a period of 1,000 years, separating the second coming of Christ and the subsequent establishment of the new water, you know, of that, of that end, it's become somewhat of, a, of an obsession, I would say, in modern times. Some say it's a literal 1,000 years, others say it's allegorical or symbolic. And there's been essentially three different doctrines that have come out of this um, millennium idea. The first one is a, is a post-millennial viewpoint. Essentially, it states that there will be a 1,000 year of righteousness and peace, and then Christ returns at the end of that. I'm giving you the very simple, short version of these, by the way. The second one is the pre-millennial viewpoint, which claims that you know, uh, there's a figure known as the Antichrist who will appear on earth, ushering in a seven-year period of suffering known as the Tribulation. And this great period of uh, destruction, war, and disaster on earth will finally end with, when God defeaters, defeats uh, evil at the battle of Armageddon. And after this, Christ will return to earth and rule for a period of a thousand years during which you know, all the evil forces will be conquered. There's more to do with premillennial doctrine than that, but that's the simple version of it. The amillennial view rejects the idea that Christ will reign for a literal thousand years prior to the end. This view states that the thousand years is symbolic and that the millennium began at Pentecost and that therefore the church and the spread of, of the gospel is Christ's kingdom and reign right now and that it all ends with his second coming. Quite a, Again, that's the simple version of it. And if you were to ask me which one do, do I believe... I honestly don't really mind, although I personally do lean towards that amillennial view, simply because I see sometimes this debate as being quite pointless. They all point to Christ's return, and the key thing is let's be ready. If you disagree with me, it's okay. You can come and talk to me later. It's no problem. But can I just, I just want you to hear this point. Be careful with where you get your teaching from Revelation from. Look for balanced views. Look for people who don't claim to be the holders of the one true interpretation. Look for the big picture of Revelation. I hesitate to see Revelation as some kind of secret code you know, that we have to d- decipher. It's, it's a brilliant work, 
of apocalyptic literature, and it strongly reminds us that human kingdoms should be resisted, and that it prophesies that Jesus, the slain lamb, who died for the sins of the world, will return one day as king. That's really what we want to hear. Jesus will permanently remove evil and make all things new. And this promise motivates every generation of God's people to remain faithful, you know, even in the middle of persecution, until their king returns. People tell us there's a tribulation to come. That's what they get out of Revelation. And if you were to ask many around the world and many other countries, they will tell you the persecution is already here. It's quite a Western thought for us to think there's still persecution to come and one day that'll be the end times. There's been persecution since Jesus left this earth for the church. Keep that in mind. So what's our application for today? Wow, we're way ahead of time. I could probably extend this a little bit. <laughs> I just saw the clock and I thought, well, either it's... Oh, there's no morning tea either. All right, you'll get an early mark today. Focus back on the message. What's our application? For me, it's what the promise of heaven means for how I live now. I guess that's what I want you to take away. The promise of God's return in eternity should change how I live in the here and now. It's not a, a, like I said earlier, it's not just a ticket to heaven that I just go and hide away in a corner now. The promise of heaven is how it means I change how I live now. C.S. Lewis, who, you know, I think I've quoted him in every one of these sermons, so we better stick with that pattern. But here's what he says. Hope is one of the theological virtues. This means that a continual looking forward to the eternal word is not, as some modern people think, a form of escapism or wishful thinking, but one of the things a Christian is meant to do. It does not mean that we are to leave the present world as it is, if you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. Do you get that? Being excited about heaven and our eternity motivates us to do something in the now. I love that. Hope for eternity is not about wishful thinking. It's, it's how a Christian lives. Hope for eternity comes out of us. It's because of our hope that we have the drive to do more today for this world. We don't abandon this world, I think is what Lewis is saying. We do better in this world. The Christian hope of eternity produces a life of eager expectation and patient waiting. Our hope is a rock-solid confidence that an incredibly good future, actually an incredibly good future beyond our imagination is certainly ours and that we want it to be everyone's. Yeah? This should change how we live our life today. So, so how are you living your life? You know, are you living your life with the hope of eternity? Are you spreading hope to others through actions and words? Is there an expectation you know, remember, the thought of the holiday, oh, that's good. <laughs> the thought of eternity, that's amazing. 
Are we spreading salt and light? Are we spreading redemption and salvation? Do we live like Christ would return at any moment? That's what Paul kept saying to us. That's how you've got to live. Is the church ready for him? Is the bride ready for the return of Christ? That's how the disciples of the New Testament lived. You know, they, were, they thought Jesus was coming back in their time. And that's how they lived. And that's probably why the church spread around the world so quickly in their time. They, were, they saw the urgency. And they lived like it. And that's our invitation today. Our invitation for us is to live like those disciples did. I know it's hard, you know, we've lived our whole life and probably all the generations before us said that too. I think Christ could come, I think Christ could come and he could. And we think, well, maybe it'll be another generation after me or two. It could be today. Christ could return. We don't even have to worry about our holiday. It'll be better. <laughs> I remember as a kid thinking... Don't come too quick, Jesus. You know, there's, I want to live my life a little bit first and get a car and a license and see how fast it'll go and all that stuff. <laughs> Heaven will be better than that. <laughs> Heaven will be better than that. My invitation to you today is join Jesus in eternity. And the way you do that is by receiving the free gift, that free gift of life. Actually says in another place in Revelation, talks about having your name in the book of life. And I want to ask you that question today. Is, is your name in that book of life? And the way it is, is receiving the free gift of salvation. Turn to Jesus, ask him to forgive you. Go all in for him. Let him be your Lord. Believe in him. Why don't we do that today? Father God, I thank you that our, our life is filled with hope. Hope in you in the now. Hope in you in, the, in eternity. And Lord, I thank you that we didn't have to work to, to earn it. You give it to us for those who, who will receive it. You give it to those who will repent and follow you. And be made right with God. And this morning, God, we do that afresh. And church, this morning, just as your eyes are closed and you're praying, if you've never committed to Jesus, if you've never asked him to forgive your sin and, to be in, uh, and for him to be your Lord, I, I invite you just to pray that prayer quietly in your heart now. If you're watching online, the same thing. God, forgive everything I've done against you and against anyone else. I invite you into my life to reign, to be my Lord. And I commit to you today. In Jesus' name.